to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, we are on a sermon series uh, on miracles. Come on, how many of you are there for week one? Yes, two of you. I'll try that again. How many of you are there for week one? Yes. Thank you for the spontaneous response. Uh, and you know, I, I'm so excited to uh, bring us uh, God's Word this morning, and I really believe it's going to bless you. Shall we start? Yes. You know, I, I, I talked about uh, the miraculous in, in week one, and uh, how the miraculous is to be the, uh, the lifestyle of the believer and uh, of the church, that miracles indeed do happen today. The power of God is active, it's working. And, this, and the miraculous, you know, it's the proof of uh, the resurrection of Christ, that He is alive today and He is working in our midst. In Romans, there's a verse that says that, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And the word salvation there is the same word that's used for healing every time it's mentioned in the Bible. Salvation, uh, the power of salvation, the work of salvation, is not limited to the forgiveness of sin. But the word salvation is the word sozo, and that means wholeness, completeness in every area of your life, body, soul, spirit. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation, healing, deliverance, breakthrough in your life. Miracles happen today. Do we agree on that? The gospel is a gospel of power, of demonstration, signs, wonders, and miracles. And we start off this series with a really simple goal filled with fancy words, and that is this. The goal of this series is to move us from being theologically charismatic, yet functionally cessationist, to being empowered by the Holy Spirit. How many of you just feel smarter reading that? And she's managing words. Feel free to Google. <clears throat> and that's our goal for this series. And uh, next week, we're having a guest speaker. Jeff Yen will be with us. Whoop, whoop. Come on. Bring your friends, your neighbors, your enemies. They're going to have a good time. And I'm so excited to have Jeff with us. And then the um, series is going to go on for one week after that. And I'll come back. And then we'll have our little anniversary. Come on. Nine years. Nine years. It's a good times. Nine years. Shall we pray before we begin? Awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you are indeed working in our midst today. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is alive, it's active, it's living, it's moving here among us. Lord, we thank you that indeed you hear our every prayer, our every cry, our every request. And God, we ask that in this moment that every need will be met with the riches of the glory. God, we ask that today will be marked with a divine exchange, that our ashes will be traded for, traded for your beauty, our sorrow for your joy. The sense of heaviness on us will be traded for praise, for great joy, great liberty. God, we ask that you do a new work in our hearts even as we dive into the scriptures this morning. God, I ask that indeed as the word is Preach today, God, that hearts will be impacted, will be touched by your very spirit. Lord, I ask that let these words be like a cleansing stream, cleansing rivers, to wash over every heart, to bring forth healing, wholeness, and completeness. 
God, I thank you that people are not, God, I ask that people will not be impressed by the eloquence of my speech or the depth of my research, but they will leave here impressed by the Holy Spirit. God, we ask for your name to be glorified in all things. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Christian walk is one of mystery. Um, the Bible gives us uh, insight to, uh, to God and how He's like. And the Bible has uh, phrases that, that say, you know, God is, His ways are far beyond our comprehension. You know? Who is man that He can fathom God? And uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, attempt as created beings to try to fully comprehend or to even profess that we are able to fully comprehend our Creator as created beings. I believe this side of eternity that we are incapable as created beings of fully comprehending the Creator. This life is one of mystery. It says to me that there are things that will happen in life and in this walk with God that will go far beyond that, that are beyond my comprehension and beyond my understanding. Are you all laughing? Spelling mistake? No? <clears throat> if we have a God that we can fully comprehend, then we have a God that's limited, that is confined to the size of our human understanding. And my suggestion to you is that there's not God at all. This very, the very nature of this relationship man and God, says to us that there are things that God will do, that He will bring about, that we aren't able to fully comprehend, understand, make sense of. This Christian life is one of mystery. The Bible says that we live by faith and not by sight. The misconception is that the opposite of faith is doubt or questions. I'd like to suggest to you that the opposite of faith is not doubt or questions, the opposite of faith is sight. And what is sight? Sight is absolute certainty. We live by faith and not by certainty. In order for faith to be in function and active, there needs to be mystery attached to it. That is why we live this life called the Christian faith. There are elements of mystery, uncertainty that we will have to navigate. And that's where faith comes into play. That's where faith is in function. Are you following me? This is the Christian life. It's one of mystery and uncertainty. And faith is almost like a two-sided coin. On one side, it's belief. It's belief in God. It's belief that God is able. It's a belief in the power of God. It's a belief that when we pray, something happens. On the other side of the coin is trust. Trust in what? A person's character, in his unchanging nature, in his goodness. Faith is a two-sided coin. It's belief and trust. And it's only in function. And it only operates in the realm of mystery and uncertainty. Am I making sense to you? And one of the most mysterious aspects of the kingdom, I believe, is the subject of prayer. Specifically this. Why some prayers are answered and why some aren't answered. Mystery. In my reading of Gospels, you know, I've come to realize that Jesus never gave explicit instructions to his disciples 
about dealing with unanswered prayer. Jesus never gave instructions to them. Hey, pray your prayers, but if it doesn't work out, then you should do this instead. He never said that. I believe that we were never meant to live life. Or it's the will of God for us to not live in the realm of unanswered prayers. And it's surprising that, you know, the, the, if you read in the scriptures, the disciples were surprised the one time their prayers didn't work. They tried to cast out a demon out of a fellow and the demons didn't leave. And they were perplexed, they were surprised, they were concerned. The church today, we are surprised, perplexed and concerned when our prayers get answered. It's opposite these days. They were surprised. When we pray, we have to pray with the expectation that there will be answers to our prayers. Can we agree on that? Jesus never taught his disciples to second guess their prayer. And here's the danger. The danger is this. If we exalt the discipline of prayer above answers to prayer, then we are in danger of exalting form above power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. And the word power is the word dunamis. It means demonstration. When we pray, we pray with the expectation that they will be answered. We pray with the expectation that God will move. Well, I believe most of us here will not refute the truth about miracles happening today. We, we just watched one. This is one of our own. We've seen them. We've seen the process they've been through. We've seen the journey they've been through. And miracle, God did something. We will not refute that miracles happen today. That God is able and willing to intervene. But we live in the tension almost of what we know as truth. The truth that God is able, that God works wonders. We live in that tension of truth and what is true, what is reality. Navigating that tension between what is truth and what is true. Theologian George Ladd coined the phrase, the kingdom is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. I like this phrase to be embedded in your minds. Just Look at the screens and let it sear into your head. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. George Ladd, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, argued that there are two meanings to the kingdom of God. Number one, God's authority and right to rule. And number two, the realm in which God exercises his authority, the kingdom. Then it's described in scripture both as a realm presently entered and as one entered in the future. Ladd concluded that the kingdom of God is both present and future. The kingdom of God is here and now, as Jesus described, but yet there are aspects of God's kingdom that aren't fully realized on the earth. The same would apply to healing and miracles. It's both now and not yet. The Bible says to us that when we call upon the name of Jesus and declare that he is Lord, that we will be saved. But the Bible also says that in the last day, when we are standing face to face with God Almighty, that we will be saved. We are saved and we will be saved. We are healed and we will be healed in that day. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. N.T. Wright, a theologian that I love, uh, he describes it in this analogy. Suppose you tell your friend you have some beer in the fridge. Your friend doesn't need to enter the fridge and close the door to enjoy the beer. He can open the door and pull out the beer. There are aspects of God's kingdom that we can experience in the here and now while awaiting that day where we enter into the fullness of his kingdom. Come on. I just love that anti-right use beer as an elegy. Just good for my soul. 
<clears throat> well, I believe miracles is an exciting and fun faith-building topic to dive into. I also recognize that this subject carries with it pain, a sense of loss, confusion, and disappointment for some. Now, I've said it uh, in week one, it's my personal belief that anyone who talks, speaks about the subject of miracles have to talk about the ones that didn't happen. We live in a world where you pray for miracles and sometimes they happen and sometimes they don't. And he who speaks on miracles must talk about the ones that didn't happen. Or he or she is painting an incomplete picture. Oftentimes the perception is that all, if all I talk about is the faith building stuff and I just glance over, skip past the things that didn't happen, I'm safeguarding faith. My suggestion to you is that you're not doing that. You, you are intentionally deceiving people by painting an incomplete picture. The reality in the world in which we live in today is that miracles sometimes, they don't happen. They don't happen. And some of us might be in the middle now. You might be going through a tough circumstance, be it a family member or contending for breakthrough in your life while you're waiting on God. Truth is, at some point, all of us, let me say it to you, all of us will experience loss, pain, and disappointment. All of us at some point will experience loss, pain, and disappointment. But I believe that we ought to do this. I believe it's healthy for us to have a preemptive resolve and approach to miracles that don't happen. It will happen one day. You know, we will experience the loss of a family member or hit an obstacle, a circumstance. How do we still maintain course, still stand firm and resolute in the promises of God? even in the face of unchanging circumstance. I believe that we can concurrently live with great faith and absolute hope in God while continually trusting Him in the face of unchanging circumstance. Before I move on further, I would like to acknowledge the heroes of faith in our room, in this room. If you've been through a, some personal loss, setbacks, or disappointment, or are currently still contending for a miracle, you are a hero of faith, and your presence here and faith in God is an inspiration us all. Thank you for being here. It's also with deep, the deepest regard to the pain represented in this room, as well as my immaturity in the subject, that I speak today and pray that whatever has been shared today will bring healing, comfort, and aid you in your journey. Today I'd like to speak on the subject of unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer. <clears throat> you alright? It's not going to be a funny one. Just get it out of the way. <laughs> There are no jokes scripted. Any jokes that come up is impromptu. <clears throat> Us and you will receive Jesus' promises and your joy will be complete. It is this very conviction, the belief that prayer works, that causes perplexity and pain when it doesn't happen. Unanswered prayer is only a problem for those of us who truly believe. For cynics, it's simply a reassurance that they were right all along. It's because you believe in prayer that unanswered prayer is a cause, source of pain and perplexity. It's precisely because we believe so passionately in the power of prayer that we must also make sense of unanswered prayer. And when we do begin to wrestle openly with this issue, it can never be a neat academic exercise for polite theological discourse because the question of unanswered prayer touches the deepest, most painful experiences of our lives. We all have friends who have lost their faith because it seemed that God was not there when they needed Him most. We can choose to bravely confront the elephant in the room or choose to live with secret disappointments that drain the joy from our relationship with God. Let's look at a passage of scripture, John 
chapter 14. Have that on the screen. It says this, you know, it's not an unfamiliar passage of scripture. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, if you ask anything, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's a startling piece of scripture. Do we agree? No? Yeah? If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. How many of you have prayed, uh, Lord, I want a Lamborghini prayer? <laughs> no? I was over at uh, Mike and Christine's house yesterday, and I mean, you don't own a Lamborghini yet, but there's, there's one park downstairs, and I was like, that's a Lamborghini. Wow. <laughs> From those prayers to uh, Lord, help me not, uh, you know, be bad or suck at this thing about doing. You know? Sometimes, you know, before I preach on Sundays, I'm downstairs in my room praying about Lord, help, help. Please make sure I'm coherent and things go well and people laugh at my jokes. <laughs> no, we pray these, these prayers, you know, uh, some of them trivial, some of them, you know, you know, this a non-emergency kind of prayer. But what about those prayers that are weightier, you know? Where we pray prayers of breakthrough, the salvation of a family member. We've all prayed prayers, you know. Anyone who has any resemblance of a prayer life deals with the reality of unanswered prayer. You know, there, there's no simple way to explain why this verse is, uh, you know, it's, it's seemingly not working out for us, you know. The Lord said, if I ask anything, it would happen. Why is it that I ask for some things and it's not happening? And sometimes I, I, I ask for these things and it happens. You know, it's, it's interesting. It says that, that the Father may glorify the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And the way we reflect this and model this in our prayers is that we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, Amen. And sometimes we approach this whole, in Jesus' name, Amen, as the if you were the abacadabra of uh, Christianity, you know, it's a magic holy incantation. It's like, let me say my, the, all the things I want, build up the Christmas lift, then like, in Jesus' name, amen. Done. You know, uh, how many of you approach prayer like that? None of you, because you're all great people. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you, you must understand it in this first century context. You know, in first century Jewish context, a person's name is synonymous with a person's nature with a person's nature. That would shift our understanding of prayer. When you pray things in my nature, they are in accordance to my ways, in accordance to the way I view things, it will be done for you. That's a, a, a simple explanation, but it doesn't solve the big questions. There are some things that we pray for that are obviously in the nature, in the will, in the heart of God. And sometimes they don't happen. Why is that? Unanswered prayer is the source of doubt and despair for millions of people, and for good reason. It's confusing. Why is it that some prayers go unanswered, and how do you live with that? You know, we watched the video of Jay and Jen. Amazing, you know, a, a miracle baby. You know, it, but in, in this same week, you know, I've gotten news of uh, two friends who, uh, two families, you know, who have experienced miscarriages, one of them in pre-late term. My question is this, what about the healing of a young baby? How is that not in God's name in God's nature. Why do so many prayers that appear to fit perfectly with God's revealed will in Scripture remain 
unanswered. Can we really just say to a mother in mourning it wasn't God's will to save your baby? Are we supposed to believe that the rape victim who screams for help is praying out of line with the father's purposes? These are extreme examples, admittedly, but they are not uncommon. How are we to make sense of the idea that God provides for the details of our lives, food on the plate and petrol in the tank, when so many people cry out to him from the furthest clutches of despair, yet suffer and die? Is it just some kind of lottery thing on who gets a miracle and who doesn't? How many of you have these kind of questions? I'd like to close the sermon right now because I don't have the answers. Here's what I believe. The truth is many of these questions will not be answered this side of eternity. I believe this, that the question we should ask rather is, how do I maintain true the course? Or as Paul puts it in his letter to the Thessalonians, hold fast to truth in the midst of the sufferings of this world that we see. In the midst and the, in, in the face of unchanging circumstance. You know, I, I remember a, a time in ministry where I was in a, a, a church meeting and we were moving around in, in the time of healing and I uh, had a gentleman come up to me and uh, he saw my name tag and went, hey, Brother Andre, I need you to pray for me. And I was like, love it, man, Brother Andre. That's, I sound mystical. And, uh, and he, he, he pulls out his foot from his boot and uh, says, my, my toe hurts. And you know, there was no scab, no injury to his toe. He just said that his toe is like, has been a, a bit tingly and it, it hurts a bit. It feels a bit sore. Uh, he might have kicked something. It's like, pray for my toe. And I was like, okay, I'll pray for your toe, you know. And that's what I'm there for. And so I prayed for his toe. And uh, he jumps up and he yells. And he almost yells an, uh, a non-church word. And, uh, and he was like, oh my gosh. And he, he's like, oh man, this is, this is awesome. And the pain left him uh, instantly. And after that, we prayed for a bunch of people. And, uh, and, and, and that was one of those like, you know, moments where every person prayed for, they just get... Um, a touch from God, you know, there were improvements in backs and knees and people were getting healed left, right, center. And as I was about to leave uh, the auditorium, uh, the church pastor uh, wheels uh, over to our team a lady who had uh, stage 4 cancer and she lost her mobility in her legs and she was just sitting there and she had an oxygen tank strapped to a wheelchair and she was sitting there and she was smiling and she was like, can you, can you guys pray for her? And we prayed for her and we prayed for her you know, three, four, maybe five times and we were there for half an hour with her. And we saw absolutely no change. Absolutely no change. And at the end of, of our time of prayer, she looks over to our team and said, thank you so much for praying. And she smiled at us and then asked to be wheeled off. And that image has, has uh, you know, been seared into my memory. The, the way I would describe this lady is that she had quiet confidence. Quiet confidence. That you would see that even in the midst of a pain, a despair, she had tremendous joy, hope. She loved, loves Jesus. And I don't know about you, but you know, the immediate question that comes to my head is that that guy with the toe issue, I would much rather this guy carry on with his toe issue and if I can like, quote unquote, like, you know, bank transfer the miracle power into the lady with cancer. I'm like, I would much rather do that. And like, toe guy, you can live with that, you know. I would rather this power. So, how many think that way? No, just me. And, and I think to myself, why, why do the things that I regard as trivial, as you know, things, you know, you can get over it, why are these things healed? And why is a lady with a 
terminal condition, on the road to death, why isn't she healed? These are questions that I, I ponder and I think about. That is why, you know, I age and, you know, I look <laughs> older than I actually am. <laughs> but here's, here's the temptation. It's easy for us to get into speculation, right? You know, I'm, I'm tempted as a pastor almost. You know, sometimes in the face of a lack of breakthrough, I go, I'm tempted to go, hey, you know, maybe you don't have enough faith or maybe there's sin in your life or maybe there's unbelief or maybe there's a demon or maybe there's people around you that is not believing in God. You know, I, and there are so many reasons I can go to, right? And it's easy, you know, because sometimes these reasons, you know, they are an easy way out instead of confronting the issue head on that we prayed and it didn't happen. Is it in the nature and will of God? I believe so, absolutely. Why isn't it done? I don't know. I don't know whether I've experienced stuff like that. But here's the thing about speculations. Oftentimes, speculations create bad assumptions. And when you speculate about it long enough, it becomes a popular thought. And the popular thought would always take root and become belief systems. And that's where you get bad doctrine. That's where you get bad doctrine. Let's look at a passage of scripture. Matthew 11. This is a story about John the Baptist in prison. It says, when, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? And we're not f- unfamiliar with John the Baptist. We know he's the miracle child of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the greatest and last the Old Testament prophets, countless disciples, and he was the one who recognized Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This is John the Baptist. Super mature, great Christian leader, person. Amazingness. And here he is, here he is in a crisis of faith. In prison, he said, Do we wait for another one? Are you the Messiah? And the next slide, it says this. Jesus answered and said, them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Let's look at Luke chapter 4. And this is Jesus' inaugural address to the people. You know, this sets the tone and stage for his ministry on the earth. He says this, quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Let's focus on that line, the fifth line. To proclaim liberty to the captives. In some translations, it says to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. My question asks is this, where is John the Baptist? He's in prison. What did Jesus promise he would do? He would proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, to the prisoners. But where was John? He was in prison. John finds himself in a place where his experience directly contradicts with the word of the Lord. God said and he promised that he would do this. But I'm experiencing this. And in that place of despair, of offense, he came to a point of unbelief where he goes, hey, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I saw wrongly. Maybe it was too far. Maybe I have nearsightedness. And maybe you're not the Messiah. 
John the Baptist, the premier Christian leader of that day, last and greatest of Old Testament prophets, came to this conclusion that maybe Jesus is not the Messiah. Because he came to a point where the word of God contradicted his personal experience. One lie that has infiltrated the church in recent times is this, that as Christians we will never go through suffering. I'd like to give you an encouraging truth, and that is this, that nowhere in Jesus' teaching does it remotely suggest that we will never go through suffering. Jesus promises great joy and peace that can be found in the kingdom, but he also promises that we will experience trials, persecutions, hardships, and sufferings. But the great comfort of our faith is that though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, he is with us. You know, other worldviews can give you intellectual answers on why things don't happen when you don't pray. But what is unique to the Christian worldview is that it does not just simply or exclusively promise intellectual answers, but it promises the presence of a person. It doesn't just give you reasons for why you're going suffering. The Christian worldview promises you that the Christian God will be with you in the midst of your pain, suffering, and despair. That's what is unique to our faith. When I think about the early church, I think about the early church being powerful, and that's what we will commonly associate to the early church. The early church was fulfilled with power. It said that miracles was almost like an everyday occurrence for the early church. At one point, the Bible says that Paul performed extraordinary miracles. It means that at some point, there were commonplace miracles or the, you know, not so high level ones. And Paul did the extraordinary ones. It was filled with power to bring deliverance, to bring breakthrough, to bring miracles. But I think, you know, the power of God was not only manifested in signs and wonders and miracles, but the power of God was also manifested in the level of endurance and perseverance the early church had. The early church went through some of the most intense trials and persecutions known to men. Heavily persecuted, their leaders thrown in prison time and time again, people killed, the scandal of Ananias and Sapphira. But yet, that early church was unstoppable. The power of God gave them endurance and perseverance to stay true to cause. I believe the same power that caused them to work extraordinary miracles was the same power that sustained them, that gave them the endurance to hold true to cause when the breakthroughs didn't happen immediately. And the same power is here today. Truthfully, there's a bit of myth when it comes to unanswered prayer that there are no answers. You know, I think there are some you know, simple intellectual answers to why some of our prayers don't get answered. Let's have that slide up. You know, I want to recommend a book, you know, if you're currently going, going through a tough spot and you're wrestling with this whole thing of unanswered prayer, get this book by an author named Pete Gregg. He wrote a book called Red Moon Rising and he has a book called God on Mute where he goes through a bunch of answers uh, for why prayers don't get answered but also sharing his own personal story. A um, few reasons why prayers don't get answered. No Common sense. You know, I remember once I was driving on the road and uh, it was a very long stretch of road and my petrol uh, bar was, you know, beyond E, you know. Have you ever had one of those? Like, it's like the bottom side of the E and I was praying like, God, you know, I need a petrol kiosk. God, I need a petrol kiosk. And, you know, now in hindsight, think about that. Now, what was I expecting God to do? To physically drop out, drop an SO from the third heaven and land it down and 
fill it with guest tenants to tend to my car. Some prayers don't get answered because it doesn't make common sense. Yeah, I, no, I believe God is able, you know, but yeah, that, that seems like a lot you know, for a petrol kiosk to appear or nowhere where a petrol kiosk wasn't there. Are you following me? You know, uh, another, pre- another reason is uh, contradiction. You know, classic example is two drivers arrive at PwC building and they both go to City Church. They both love God. They both love Jesus. And they pray prayers and they are just lovers of God, you know, spiritual people. And they are circling the PwC lot and there was one parking lot. And they both arrived at the same time. And they are still circling and trying to find a parking lot. And both of them pray prayers like, God, I need a parking lot. <laughs> Who will God answer? <laughs> Does God have favor? Or another classic example. Tonight, Manu is going to play Tottenham Hotspurs. I believe there are Manu supporters in this place, yes? I believe there are Tottenham supporters in this place, yes? Yeah. And both groups of people pray for their football clubs, which is, you know, a lot more prayer that we see than the prayers in church. But you know, nobody ever go like, hey, let's pray for a pastor. You might need it, but yeah. That's beside point. That's another teaching for another day. But classic example, contradiction, you know? Does God have favorites? Who will you answer? I don't know. The loss of nature, you know. I, I know, you know Jesus calmed the storm, the winds and the waves, but there's some that, that we have to understand that God built this world with a system in place, with certain laws, with certain parameters. And more often than not, they seem to work great. Right? And so, you know, for example, a classic example is that, you know, you're in a plane. How many of you are flying soon? I hope not scare you. You're in a plane and it's going to... It's, it's on its way down, it's crashing, and then you're in a plane, you pray, God, save me, save me. And in that moment, you are, you are praying a prayer where, you know, I want the laws of, of gravity to completely stop and for the plane to float in the ground. And, you know, God is able to do that. But how many of you know that if the laws of gravity were suspended, there were, it would cause like a bunch of problems for the people here below, yes? Some prayers will get answered because they defy the systems that God has placed, in, has placed the laws of nature. Are you following me? Yes? Does this make sense? Some prayers will get answered because life is tough. Life is tough. You know, stuff happens. <clears throat> Some prayers are answered because creation is subjected to frustration and has not yet been fully liberated from its bondage to decay. That's Romans chapter 8. Tragically, life in such an environment is inevitable, going to be acutely difficult at times. Sometimes life is difficult. And the last reason is that we, we, we have an adversary. Defeated, but we still have an adversary. And how I describe Satan is that he is wounded, he's defeated by this, you know, death throes. He is pushing out his last ditch attempt. And the truth of the matter is that God's will hasn't been fully realized on the earth. And that's why we pray, Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If his will has been fully realized and established on the earth, that prayer will be a senseless, vain, unnecessary one. But his will hasn't been fully established. But all this to say, you know, this is not to give us a theology that will sustain the reality of unanswered prayer. But this gives us insight into the way God's world works and also causes us to be aware of the world we live in. However, the question still stands. When all the boxes have been checked, when it's seemingly in the will of God, when I feel the unction to pray, the presence of God, but nothing changes. What do you do in those moments? How do you navigate loss, pain, and disappointment? The intellectual answers are important. Don't get me wrong, but intellect alone cannot help us navigate the minefield of pain and suffering. Other worldviews also offer intellectual answers, but Christianity alone offers a person. Let me read to you a, a, a chunk of a 
a paragraph from uh, Ravi Zacharias' book on suffering. He goes like this, The rationality of Christian faith is not undermined by the existence of evil and suffering, but the challenge suffering poses to believe in God is not the only problem of suffering. There's also the problem of how we are going to deal with suffering. And that's a problem for every one of us, regardless of what we do or do not believe about God. Something about the problem of suffering, something the problem of suffering should push us away from God. For me, it's precisely because I feel the problem of suffering so severely that I'm led to trust a God who can do something about it. Each one of us is going through to deal with, a significant, with significant suffering in our lives. And one day, each of us is going to have to deal with the reality of death. When suffering comes, when death comes, who will bear it with us? Who will see us through it? Jesus will, if we ask him to. He won't force himself into our lives. But if we invite him, then we will never be alone in our suffering. And we can trust that we will spend eternity in a place where suffering will be no more. In closing, I'd like to share uh, something that I've shared before. And I call these our cornerstone beliefs. You know, I believe that uh, in navigating these issues, there's no cookie-cutter method. There's no three-step process to navigating through pain, loss, and disappointment, no matter what people tell you. But it's unique, and it requires a personal journey walk with the Lord. And I believe that these cornerstone beliefs set parameters for that engagement, for that navigation. Cornerstone, we understand it as um, a stone that forms the base of a corner building. It joins two walls. But in an agrarian culture, cornerstones are actually stones that they put in the four corners of a property, hence the name cornerstone. And it actually demarcates the... The parameter, it, it, it tells uh, people that this is my land and also sets uh, the parameter for how far you can build, how far you can go, how far your cattle is uh, allowed to graze. It sets the parameter. And my hope is that today we will set these four cornerstones in place. And in our navigation of pain, loss, and disappointment where we bring these questions before the Lord in faith, that we will not veer off course, that we will stay true to course, that we will stay within these four cornerstones. Are you with me? Are you with me? First cornerstone is simple. It's that God is good. God is good. Exodus chapter 33, not a uh, foreign piece of scripture. It's, it's about Moses. And Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And this is a brazen request. At this point, Moses has seen the plagues. He has seen the seas split. He has seen the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. He has seen the miraculous provision of God in the form of manna. He has seen all these Wondrous works, if you will. But yet, as he comes to this point in his life, he's still not satisfied. And he asks, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Commentators say that in that moment, Moses came to face to face with the absolute nature of God, his goodness. His nature that transcends the wondrous works. That these works, they reveal bits and pieces of his nature. But Moses came face to face with the absolute nature of God, his goodness. And oftentimes we think of the goodness of God as dynamic instead of absolute. Goodness to us is something that we measure on occasion. It's true, you know. 
The question is this, is God good when he performs up to your expectation or is God good because it is who he is? What happens when God does something that seems to contradict your expectation of what good is? My suggestion to you this morning is this, that God's goodness is not limited or confined by our understanding of it. The goodness of God isn't something that we define based on our terms. It says to me that there will come moments in life where we stand in you know, a supposed crossroads where we have a certain expectation of how something ought to pan out. And then God does the absolute, uh, God moves in a totally different direction. And here is our expectation of what good is. But God does something absolutely different. And in that moment, we can choose to be either offended that God did not perform up to our expectations or choose to realign our perspective, our understanding of what good is, or just choose to trust and believe and actually walk out this faith you so profess to believe in. In Habakkuk, chapter 1, you know, uh, just a bit of context, it says Habakkuk doesn't like the way God's running things, and he lets God know about it. He literally says, what in the world are you doing, God? He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. And he goes on his list of complaining. And then God responds in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. He goes, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it will talk you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breath of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. You know, this is a long passage of scripture. I encourage you to read it in your time. Basically, this is what happened. And this is a truth that we often glance past when we read this scripture. A simple truth is that, that we easily blow by is this, that God heard Habakkuk and he responded. That's pretty effective prayer. God heard Habakkuk's re- request and he responded. But here's the thing. Habakkuk's expectation of what God would do was vastly different from what God did. And at the moment, he had a choice. Do I choose to be offended with God that he did not perform up to my expectations or what I perceive is the wise thing to do? Or do I shift and align my perspectives, my heart to God and trust and believe in in him? Faith is an ever-evolving journey. It's dynamic. It doesn't mean that one day you go like, I have faith in Jesus and then the matter settled once and for all. But there are going to be times and moments in your life where your faith is tested, where your faith is refined and where your faith matures. It's like a relationship. Elementary faith is this. Elementary faith is belief in God because of supposed benefits. But mature faith looks like belief and trust in God in the face of unchanging circumstances. That's what mature faith looks like. I'm making sense. The next cornerstone is this. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Another familiar passage of scripture, Romans chapter 8. Are you with me? Yeah? Yeah? Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Every time the subject of suffering is brought up, everybody will inevitably go to Nazis and Hitler. And today, you know, I'm just going to go there before you go there yourself. 
unsurprisingly, Hitler's Holocaust, during which at least 5 million people were herded together and systematically slaughtered, is cited more than any other global atrocity as evidence in the case against God. Here we are told is the ultimate example not just of man's brutality to men, but of God's disregard for people, his own people. For this reason, an American rabbi, Dr. Reeve Robert Brenner, surveyed hundreds of Holocaust survivors to find out how their experiences had affected their belief about God. Dr. Brenner's conclusions were extraordinary. First, he discovered that the horrors of the Holocaust had no impact at all on the religious, religious convictions of a remarkably high percentage of the survivors, almost half. Somehow these people had endured hell on earth without losing their faith in God. One of them said, it never occurred to me to question God's doings while I was an inmate of Auschwitz, although of course I understand that others did. However, the really extraordinary discovery made by Dr. Brenner was that 5% of the Holocaust survivors in his survey had actually abandoned atheism and begun to believe in God as a direct result of their experiences in the Nazi laboratories of death. If we project, just follow me, if we project the extraordinary statistics onto the total number of European and Russian Jews that survived the Holocaust, roughly around 3.5 million people. It is equivalent to 177,000 survivors coming to faith through the concentration camps. To put it another way, it would be like 5% of the total population of Los Angeles turning to God in just five years. In Christian terms, this might be described as one of the most fruitful revival moments in any one people group during the last 80 years. However, it becomes astounding when considered against the backdrop of the concentration camps, so often held up as a primary evidence against the benevolence of God. Am I saying that God orchestrated the camps? No. I'm saying that God is able to make good of even the most hellish and negative circumstances of life. Think about the cross. The cross as a symbol of death and execution. Today, it's a symbol of beauty, of wonder we wear around our necks. He's able to make the most grotesque situations turn into objects of beauty. He's able to win a poker game with a pair of tools, if you will. What does it mean for me when my prayer doesn't get answered? I can trust that God has something better in store, or I can trust that He's able to turn a negative situation into something that testifies of His glory. Are you with me? Next cornerstone is this. I am significant. I am significant. I'll explain this in a bit. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 43. Let's book it. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And this is a wonderful biblical promise that God is the one who walks us, walks with us through our sufferings, through our pain, through our despair. That He doesn't observe as a spectator from afar. He is with us in the midst of pain. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In the moments of our answered prayer, it's easy to feel overlooked and insignificant. But the pain, loss, and anguish we go through matters to God. The misconception of faith is that as a person of faith, I am required to suppress any negative emotions, doubts, or uncertainties. But my suggestion to you this morning is this, that faith does not deny the existence of a problem. It denies it a place of influence. Jesus himself went through the anguish of unanswered prayer. 
The journey begins on Monday, Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ's soul is overwhelmed with sorrow and his prayers for deliverance go unanswered. It continues through Good Friday where Christ considers himself forsaken by the Father in his hour of deepest need. Next, we traverse the gloom and confusion of Holy Saturday, asking where is God when, God, when Jesus himself lies dead and buried. Finally and inevitably, Gethsemane, Golgotha and the Barrow Garden are engulfed by the good news of Easter Saturday. When I think through verses like, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and the staff shall comfort me. It says to me that there are depths, measures, and aspects of the presence of God that I will only experience in the midst of pain, suffering, and despair. I know I'm taking a bit longer, but this is important. Are you with me? Let me read to you a story. In the first of his Narnia Chronicles, I love C.S. Lewis. The magician nephew, magician's nephew. You know, I quote C.S. Lewis pretty much for the last four sermons, but it's his favorite. Which is the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you seen that movie? Yes? Yeah, you should at least watch that one. And I will preach on that one day, so your minds will be blown. C.S. Lewis tells this story of a boy named Diggory, whose mother is dying. When Diggory first encounters the great lion, Aslan, he gathers his courage and asks, May I please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make my mother well? It's a heart-rending request, a prayer of desperation. And yet at the time, Arslan appears to ignore him completely. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid he would say no, but he was taken back when he did neither. Degree thought of his mother and thought of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away. Alarm came in his throat and tears in his eyes. He blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and a huge claws on them. Now in despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and, one, and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Degree's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Degree's prayer remained unanswered, but everything had changed. Now he knew that the great lion in whom all his hopes were resting truly cared. Whenever we carry a burden to God in prayer, begging, please, please, won't you, can't you? And yet God remains silent. We may assume that he is unmoved as long as our eyes remain downcast, reverently at his feet. But when in our pain and shame we dare to lift our gaze to study his countenance, we find his face bent down near our own and great shining tears are in his eyes. Pete Gregg has this quote, he says this, that the thing that keeps God out of our lives is not our sin. It's our compulsion to pretend, to cover up our nakedness with fig leaves, to climb sycamore trees in order to see without being seen. And when we do, he will sometimes look up laughing and invite himself to tea. A Singaporean context, Ham Ching Bang. Jesus himself had pronounced that those who mourn will be blessed. Walter Brueggemann, Amazing theologian says is that implicit in this statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted and those who do not face the endings will not face their beginnings. Will not receive the beginnings. Your pain, your struggle is significant. It matters to God. He is not unmoved. But he looks at you in your despair with tears in his eyes. The last thing, the last cornerstone is this. Everything was purchased at Calvary. Everything was purchased on the cross. Let's look at a couple of scriptures real quick. 
1 Peter 2, 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's look at Luke chapter 9. It says this, Jesus sent his disciples, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In the New Testament, we find the, very, the first recorded works of Jesus in Mark's Gospels. In Mark's Gospel, and they are this. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Through healing, Jesus gave his audience a glimpse of what the fullness of the kingdom of God will look like. There were signs or pointers to the future kingdom finding its expression in the here and now. God's will for the earth was breaking through into the world through Jesus. The kingdom of God had been inaugurated and healings were a sign of its arrival. Yet, while the time of ultimate fulfillment lays in the future, when everyone will experience the fullness of the kingdom, God's reign was now being seen in its early stages. In this light, the miraculous takes on a whole new meaning. It's something that should be anticipated even today as evidence of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. However, as a partial inbreaking, the reality is that, it's not, that not everyone in every situation will experience its effects. However, in that day, God's reign will be made complete and the world along with everyone in it will be made whole. The good news is this. Jesus will get what he paid for. A theologian once says, I flipped to the end of the book and we win. And what does that victory look like? It looks like this. Revelation 21. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. If you go on, it says, Behold, I make all things new. How do we move on from here? Do we still pray? John Wimber, founder of Vineyard Movement, he said this, When we prayed for no one, no one was healed. When we started praying for people, not everyone was healed, but some were healed. I pray today because I believe that miracles happen. And the power of God is able to bring deliverance to my circumstance. But if I don't see things happen, my faith isn't derailed, but is then directed towards the soon coming day when all things will be made new, where I will be truly healed, where the fullness of God's kingdom is established on the planet. Until that day, I hold fast to these pillars. God is good. Nothing is impossible. I am significant. And everything was purchased on Calvary. One last story. This is going to be a good one. In 1842, an Irishman named Joseph Scriven graduated from Trinity College and promptly fell head over heels in love with a girl from his hometown. They got engaged with great excitement, planned their wedding and began dreaming about their future together as a husband and wife. The eve of their wedding arrived at last and Joseph's fiancée saddled a horse to go see him. Tragically, it was one of the last things she would ever do. A little later, Joseph saw his bride to be riding towards him, and he grinned. But suddenly, just as he was crossing, she was crossing the bridge over the river, her horse bucked and threw her like a rag doll down into the river below. In blind panic, Joseph ran to the river, calling out her name. He plunged into the icy waters, but it was too late. His bride was already dead. Heartbroken, Joseph immigrated to Canada, where eventually he fell in love again. In 1854, Joseph was due to marry Eliza Roche, but she fell ill and grew progressively worse. The wedding was repeatedly postponed until three years later, Eliza died. Joseph would never give his heart to another. 
and went back home in Ireland. Joseph's mother, Joseph's mother was deeply concerned for her heartbroken son. And in turn, he was concerned for her. One night, Joseph penned a poem to comfort her. Several years later, a friend found it in his drawer and was deeply moved. Joseph explained, the Lord and I wrote this together. That poem fought out of so much disappointment and pain continues to call millions of people in their own Gethsemanes to admit their, gra- their grief, their trials and temptations, their sorrows and their weakness to Jesus in the privilege of prayer. And the poem goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The next slide. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. The world defines victory as a change in circumstance. The kingdom defines it differently. It defines it as the willingness to pray again in the face of unchanging circumstance. Let's stand. You know, I have a, I have a friend uh, yeah, I've known for a number of years now, and uh, she's been through some of uh, you know, the worst situations in life now. Been through many trials and, and troubles, and some of the, the things in her life aren't solved, uh, the issues aren't unsolved yet. And once I was talking to her, I was like, you know, hey, I'm so impressed by you, and I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, how, how do you uh, not lose faith and hope in God? even when your know, life throws a bunch of nonsense at you where things don't appear that, that, that they can change. And uh, she, she said to me, Andre, I view life like a waltz. How many of you know what a waltz is? It's a dance. And she said, no, in, in a waltz, uh, there never is a goal for uh, us or the couple that's dancing to land up in a specific spot in the dance floor. There isn't a goal where you walk here and you're like, eventually I want to end up at that spot in the dance floor. Nobody thinks that way. But the goal of the waltz is to remain as close to your partner through the entire dance. And she said to me that life's goal isn't the destination. The goal of life is for me to remain close to God in the face of circumstance, despair, loss, pain and disappointment that I will not forsake this closeness with God. That I will hang on to Him for dear life. Now hold fast to Him in the face of unchanging circumstance. I'd like to close with a prayer from St. Ignatius. He says this, O Christ Jesus, when all is darkness and when we feel our weakness and helplessness, give us the sense of Your presence, Your love and Your strength. Help us to have perfect trust in Your protecting love and strengthening power so that nothing may frighten or worry us for living close to You. Come on. For living close to you, we shall see your hand, your purpose, your will through all things.
living close to him. In this moment, you know, there are folks in this room that are going through pain and disappointment and whether you feel it's significant or insignificant, whether you feel it's trivial, big or small, it matters to God. And the grace of God and the power of God that gives us endurance and perseverance is here in this room right now. And so I'd like us to, to take a moment, just close your eyes and just look to the Lord in prayer today. He knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Yes. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we sufferings, pain and disappointments? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we lost and setbacks? Yes. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In this moment, just engage with the Lord and bring to Him your pain, your sorrow, your disappointment, your questions. Let's take a moment.